Today, we're going to talk about minions. That's right, minions. Specifically, we're going to talk about Despicable Me, the film that started it all and kicked off the now multi-billion dollar franchise. I would like to address something, however, that I don't think very many people, if any at all, have noticed. Symbolism. To put a finer point on it, the symbolism of the Illuminati and of Freemasonry. Before we dive in, I'd like to give a little bit of background information on myself. My name is Christopher. I am a recent law school graduate who had previously majored in English literature and who had developed from an early age a passion for ancient stories, legends, and mythologies, as well as the art of debate, rhetoric, and just philosophy in general. I was always questioning, never accepting things at face value much to the chagrin of my parents and my teachers. This mode of thinking critically and maintaining a healthy amount of skepticism eventually led me down the path of studying the law, although the interests of my childhood and that insatiable, bordering on obsessive, drive to get to the truth of things never died. And with that out of the way, let's get to the topic at hand. As one final caveat, I must be honest up front and admit that I will mostly be talking about observations and what I might call bizarre coincidences. Things that anyone could see, honestly, if they're observant enough. However, when it comes to determining the precise meaning of it all, I'm just not sure. I can see the pieces, but I find that the whole of it remains elusive. I can sit here and formulate hypotheses, but at the end of the day, that's all they will ever be. Perhaps I'm just not smart enough to see how it all fits together. Who knows why these symbols are in the film? Of all the millions of ways something could have been animated or written, why was it done in this exact manner? Was it a joke? An Easter egg for peculiarly observant people? Or is the movie actually some sort of complex code or cipher to a deeper truth hidden in plain sight? And what better way to disguise something than dressing it up in the trappings of a children's film so that theories such as mine might be more easily dismissed, ridiculed, or not taken seriously? Either way, my primary goal is simply to shine a light on the symbolism so that people can come to their own conclusions. And I invite you, my dear listeners, to do the same. Now, without further ado, let's get into it. The film's opening scene is preceded, of course, by the logo of the animation studio itself, Illumination Studios. To be precise, it reads Illumination Entertainment. Let's pause here. The word Illumination, if we look it up on Webster's Dictionary, can mean 
either a spiritual or intellectual enlightenment, or lighting up. We know that the word illumination, as its etymological roots in the Latin uh, illuminati, with a nominative form illuminatio. This word, in turn, comes from the Proto-Indo-European root, en, meaning in, or into, and the Proto-Indo-European root, luk, meaning light or brightness. The Greek lukos also means light. Lux is the Latin word for light. Lucin, in Armenian, means moon, which is also interesting because the moon will come into play later. On a more apparent level, the word illumination contains within it the word illuminati, widely known these days and notorious for injecting many Hollywood films and other forms of media with various symbols, which tend to recur, some of them in this film. We can also read the phrase illumination entertainment as Illuminati on entertainment, therefore giving this logo a double entendre. The logo itself radiates with a pure white shining light, which emanates omnidirectionally in rays, similar to the way that the Eye of Providence, contained within a pyramid, shines on the backside of an American $1 bill. Finally, before the logo's light fades, the negative space within the letter N is highlighted with a slightly bolder black, while the rest of the image remains paler in contrast. As a result, the negative space forms a noticeable triangle. This might seem like a small or even insignificant detail to most, but we must remember that shapes and geometry play a pivotal role in many secret societies, especially Freemasonry, and the Illuminati. And before all of this, let's not forget that we're met with our first character, the very first character of the entire franchise. A single minion enters from the right side of the screen to wave hello to us. Notably, it has only one eye. A single eye. Often thought to allude to the Eye of Providence, or perhaps the Eye of Horus, frequently called the all-seeing eye. It's a very common recurring motif within Illuminati and Freemason symbolism, so much so that you will often see celebrities and photo shoots covering one eye, highlighting a single eye, or winking with one eye open, looking at the camera, and by extension, the viewer. Numerology is also important within Illuminati and Freemason symbolism as well. If we take a look at this minion, we see that he has three fingers. He even holds them up for us to see, so there's no mistaking it. The number three is significant within Illuminati and Freemason symbolism, because three represents triplicity, perhaps the tripartite nature of a creator deity we might see in certain monotheistic religions. Remember that Freemasonry is not inherently a religious organization, yet it does espouse the idea of a creator deity, and many of its lodges are known to study Christianity. 
But to be clear, Freemasonry is not per se a Christian fraternity. Now, getting back to the concept of triangulation. Triangles and pyramidal structures can be found in nature everywhere, and Freemasons, thought to originate from medieval stonemasons, or perhaps from ancient architects, if one is to believe they had an older origin, and they have a great appreciation for the number three. So much so that the apron that Freemasons wear is comprised of a square with a triangular fold. Geometrically, an equilateral triangle can be broken into nine smaller equilateral triangles, or three sets of three. In the middle of the tetractus, we can find a perfect hexagon, which contains six equilateral triangles. The hexagon can also be viewed as containing a cube, which contains six square faces, corresponding to the six sides of the hexagon. Members of the ancient school and secret religion of Pythagoreanism worshipped the divine triangle, and reverence of triangles can be seen in other religions as well. Take the Star of David, for example, which is essentially two triangles, one facing up and the other facing down, which contains six smaller equilateral triangles, and with a hexagon in the center, which again has six faces. Triangular symbolism also appears in the Tree of Life of the Kabbalah. Even Hinduism features a three-part deity in the form of Brahma, the creator, Vishnu, the sustainer, and Shiva, the destroyer. This theme of triangulation could comprise an entire essay all to itself. But I digress. Getting back to the minion, he looks at us, the viewer, with one eye open, the all-seeing eye. He has three fingers on each hand. A triangle appears before us in the negative space of the N in illumination. And then the film proper begins. And we open, of course, in Egypt. Front and center before us is none other than the Pyramid of Giza. Again, continuing with our theme of threes and triangles. Beginning the film with showing the Pyramid of Giza could be a reference to the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, or rather, Hermeticism an ancient philosophical system based on the teachings of Hermes Trismegistus, a combination of the Greek god Hermes and the Egyptian god Thoth. As one of the greater architectural feats in the history of humankind, the pyramids of ancient Egypt naturally are idolized and revered by the Freemasons, and thus serve as a fitting backdrop to the commencement of the film. Soon enough, however, we find out that the pyramid is a fake. The real pyramid has been purloined and replaced with something akin to a balloon or a whoopee cushion. And personally, I found this notion of fakeness or artificiality to be fascinating. It seems to imply that perhaps the monuments of great historic significance, or perhaps even history itself as it is known, the narrative of history, is not what we think it is. The fact that the pyramid has been replaced with a blow-up inflatable, and for some unidentified duration of time, just drives home the idea that maybe a joke or trick has been played on us. Maybe we can't see the truth, even when it is right in front of our eyes, because it was indistinguishable from the reality to which we had become accustomed to for so long. 
No one knew about the secret hidden in plain sight. No one questioned the authenticity of the world until they were forced to confront it. Eventually, we're introduced to our main character, Gru. His full name, to be exact, is Felonius Gru. Now, the word felonious, of course, comes from the word felon, circa 1300, which means one who deceives or commits treason, one who is wicked or evil, evildoer. Used with reference to Lucifer and Herod. From the old French felon, circa 900, meaning evildoer, scoundrel, traitor, rebel, oathbreaker, the devil. Ultimately, the word has Latin origins, but any earlier origins are disputed. While I could not find an etymological origin for the word gru, interestingly, GRU is an acronym for the main directorate of the general staff of the armed forces of the Russian Federation, a Russian security and intelligence agency that was initially formed during World War II by Joseph Stalin, right after the German invasion of the Soviet Union sort of like the FBI, NSA, or CIA, but for Russia. While I'm not entirely sure why the screenwriters for the film chose the name Felonious Grew, I do find it odd that implicit within the protagonist's moniker is a reference to Lucifer, wickedness and traitorousness, as well as a reference to a Russian intelligence agency. The strangest is compounded when we also consider the fact that the character himself does speak with a distinctive Russian accent, and that Steve Carell himself admitted in an interview with NPR that he may have been influenced by Alan Arkin's character in the 1966 film, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. When Gru enters his underground lair, we get a better look at the minions, and we can see quite prominently, stitched onto the front of their denim overalls, is a peculiar symbol. The symbol comprises of a black circle, which circumscribes a perfect square, tilted on its side to form a diamond, a shape which can be divided into two triangles if bisected. Within the diamond at its center is another black circle, which emits a line traveling due east. The direction of this line, or ray, extends in the same direction of the rising sun hinting perhaps at the origin of the occult groups in ancient Egypt, who worshipped the sun-disc god Aton, which was distinct from Re or Ra, the Egyptian sun god most of us are familiar with. The symbol, when looked at it in its entirety, bears a striking resemblance to the letter G, which is one of the most important and foundational letters in all of Freemasonry. The letter G is widely thought to represent God, geometry, or great architect of the universe. It could also represent gnosis, the Greek word for knowledge. Gimel, the third letter of the Hebrew alphabet, also signifying three. The square and the compass are also integral symbols to Freemasonry as well. And the top half of this diamond could represent the compass, while the bottom half represents the square. The symbol also appears on the side of the vehicle that Gru drives, which also features a prominent right triangle in its design. Not to be outdone by the pyramid heist, 
Gru reveals his big villainous plan, which of course is to steal the moon. Again, these motifs of fakeness and artificiality come into the fore. Besides the Jumbotron from Times Square, which of course features the NBC Universal logo, the six feathered peacock, all of Gru's previously stolen monuments are not the authentic monuments. He has stolen the Statue of Liberty and the Eiffel Tower, but the ones from Vegas. The notion of thievery, trickery, and deception continues to pervade the narrative, and the very concept of historical authenticity is called into question vis-a-vis stolen monuments being taken and replaced with replicas. As an aside, NBC's logo may also be a subtle nod to the ancient deity Melektos, or Tuusi Melek, from which the Hebrew word Molek, meaning king, may derive. In modern English, we would refer to this deity as Malak or Moloch. Moloch, which has a rich history and appears in many forms of film and literature, including Fritz Long's Metropolis, was a Semitic god to whom children were sacrificed. This is the definition per Merriam-Webster. Moloch is mentioned in Kings and Jeremiah in the Christian Bible as a deity whose worship was marked by the propitiatory sacrifice of children by their own parents. This is especially interesting when considering that the Proto-Indo-European linguistic roots of the name Agnes, the youngest of the three girls that grew adopts. Uh, And again, the motif of three appears. It translates to to worship or to sacrifice. And of course, Agnes is just one of a trifecta of girls, following our theme of three. Before we move on, an interesting note on Tuusi Melek. This ancient and obscure deity, a central figure in the Yazidi religion, is known as the Peacock Angel, and is considered to be one of seven divine beings directly serving under the one god, who is also the lord of this world. In Yazidi mythology, when Tawusi Melek descended to earth as an emanation of god, it appeared as a seven-colored bird. This same coloration scheme can be observed in the NBC peacock logo, if we include the six colored feathers and the white body in the center of the image as the seventh color. It was believed that God first created Tawusi Melek from his own Ronahi, or illumination. Tawusi Melek is also somewhat of a Luciferian figure, by virtue of the deity's refusal to bow to man. The peacock angel rejected submitting to another being, because he was from God's illumination, while man was made of dust. The Islamic mythological narrative of Iblis, found in the Quran, depicts Iblis, a figure much like Tawusi Melek, as the leader of seven devils rather than angels. And Iblis was maligned by God for his refusal to prostrate before man. Returning to Gru's plans to steal the moon. In order to do so, he needs money. Specifically, he needs a loan. Naturally, he travels to the Bank of Evil for some much-needed cash. The motif of 
something hidden lurking behind the superficial or the artificial, that is the constructed world in front of our eyes, something secret lying in plain sight, is once again at play as an otherwise unremarkable bathroom in a nondescript bank transforms to give way to a more exclusive bank, the Bank of Evil, of course. And clearly seen below the secret bank's title is the phrase, formerly Lehman Brothers. This is a more adult-oriented joke that many, if not all, of the children watching the film would not have picked up on. But beyond the pretext of a simple joke, perhaps there is more to this. Why Lehman Brothers, after all? It seems oddly specific. Well, along with Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and Merrill Lynch, Lehman Brothers Holding Inc. was one of the largest investment banks in the United States, if not the world. It had been operating for 158 years until it filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, after a steep decline in its stock price. Their bankruptcy can be seen as a catalyst for the global financial crisis of 2007 to 2008. And it would not be mere speculation to claim that Lehman Brothers played a, a crucial role in triggering the collapse due to its involvement in the subprime mortgage crisis. Looking back to the history of, of the company, even its inception seems to be unscrupulous. It is known that at least one of the Lehman Brothers, Mayor Lehman, was a slave owner. And their business, which began as a humble dry goods store, only truly boomed after the brothers capitalized on the high market value of cotton by accepting it as payment for merchandise, a good produced primarily through slave labor, which essentially was a free currency to use if a customer was, was short on cash. Subsequently, the crop could then be sold for an even higher profit than would have normally been attained from trading their goods strictly for monetary currency. An interesting side note is that Stephen Allen Schwartzman, an alum of the Wharton School, Yale, and the Harvard Business School, and known member of the Skull and Bones Society, was a managing director at Lehman Brothers before founding the Blackstone Group with Peter Peterson, his boss at the time. And the Blackstone Group formed a 50-50 partnership with BlackRock Inc., founded by Larry Fink, who is also the current CEO of BlackRock. So, indeed, perhaps the title of Bank of Evil is a well-deserved one for what was formerly Lehman Brothers. The formerly does seem to imply that perhaps the Bank of Evil, if we were to speculate as to its real-life parallel, is a subtle nod to Blackstone Group or BlackRock Inc., the former being a company formed by an ex-employee of Lehman Brothers. This could also be seen as a reference to either Barclays or Nomura Holdings, the two main companies who bought out Lehman Brothers after its bankruptcy, although I believe it's more likely it's referencing either Blackstone or BlackRock. In Despicable Me, the primary point of contact linking Gru to the Bank of Evil is Mr. Perkins, the father of the film's main antagonist. This character is densely laden with symbolism. His surname, for one, is multifaceted. It can be viewed on a more simplistic level as a crude joke, since Perkins may be etymologically related to Son of Peter or Little Peter, 
Peter is often a slang term for male genitalia. However, beyond this joke, if we trace back the etymological roots of Perkins as a bastardization of the phrase kin of Pierre, or Pierre kin, Pierre being a surname brought to England during the Norman conquest, and we quickly realize that Pierre is the French form of Peter, both of which in their respective languages mean rock or stone, stemming from the Latin Petra. Thus, Mr. Perkins' surname literally indicates that he is the kin of rock or stone, again a clue that the real-world parallel to the Bank of Evil, formerly Lehman Brothers, is now Blackstone or Blackrock. He is also seen holding an apple in one of his hands, which is traditionally, or at least since the publication of Milton's Paradise Lost, the fruit from the Tree of Knowledge of Good and Evil. Though technically this fruit is never named, and could have been a fig, peach, pear, or some other seed-bearing fruit. Next, we'll focus on the geometry of his character model. His face, while rounded, is roughly triangular in shape. His head is bald, besides two triangular tufts of hair just above both of his ears, which also appear to be triangular. He wears a suit jacket with a pocket square with a triangular fold. The collar of his shirt consists of two equilateral triangles, and the space between his neck and the vest beneath his suit is also triangular. In fact, his entire body seems to be triangular, as his shoulders are incredibly broad, while his legs taper off almost to a point, with diminutive feet. When viewed in a certain light, the pattern of light that shines atop Mr. Perkins' forehead also appears to be either another triangle, or perhaps the compass component of the Masonic square and compass symbol, while his eyebrows symbolize the square component. And while we're on the subject of bodies, notably, Gru's own physiognomy physiology, rather, is highly angular, and also forms a triangle when viewed in its entirety, with his shoulders being abnormally broad and his legs tapering to a point, much like Mr. Perkins. Additionally, when his arms hang down at his sides, Gru's body appears to form the letter M, which is another symbol rife within Freemasonry. While we've discussed the importance of the letter G, which is featured prominently within the film's universe, as well as in a plethora of commonplace logos, Google comes to mind, the letter M is just as important. If we were to draw two parallel lines, which tangentially connect with the vertices of the symbol, the top half of the M forms an equilateral triangle, and the bottom half would form two right triangles facing one another. This is a total of three triangles, and triangles as we know have three sides. The letter M also represents the, the square apron that Freemasons will wear, which they receive upon initiation, and which is traditionally folded in triangular fashion, almost like the front of an envelope. In fact, the letter M is featured within the logo for Gmail, which is an envelope, but could also be a nod to the fold of the Masonic apron. Before Gru's first meeting with Mr. Perkins, he quickly glances over some plans and blueprints, which detail the structure of his rocket, and depict his trajectory, the moon. Curiously, the moon is segmented into two halves, the half facing the Earth, 
due to its nature of being tidally locked, and the half permanently hidden from our vantage point here on Earth, colloquially known as the dark side of the moon. Furthermore, on Gru's blueprints, the dark side of the moon is indicated by a line pointing to the moon's surface, at the region facing away from the Earth. The mass of the moon in kilograms is indicated, and is actually scientifically accurate, per NASA measurements. This is similarly true of the moon's diameter, which is also notated on the plans. Most curious of all, however, it's a small bit of text to the right-hand corner of the document, barely visible, which states, Note, possible life form. This moment is a relatively quick one, spanning perhaps only the length of a second or two. After looking through the original screenplay for the film, one will also notice that there's no reference to this within the screenplay itself. These facts imply two things. First, this moment was specifically and intentionally added into the film, despite its absence from the original source material. Query as to whether it was added simply as a humorous detail. But the fact remains that an animator working at Illumination either chose to inject this into the film or was instructed to do so. Second, this moment was intended to be visible by the film's viewers, but was deliberately abbreviated to the degree where the detail would likely go unnoticed by anyone except the most astute and observant among us. More curious still is that this isn't the film's only reference to extraterrestrial life, a subject that seems out of place for this seemingly innocuous children's film, but we will return to that point later. In the narrative of the film, Gru's blueprints transition cinematographically via a dissolve and match cut into the actual moon, which Gru watches on television as a child. Audio cues indicate that young Gru is watching the Apollo 11 moon landing. On the surface, this is simply a flashback sequence explaining Gru's motive for wanting to travel to the moon. But if we take a closer look, more symbols and more coincidences begin to surface. Gru is wearing a box over his body, presumably because he's pretending to be an astronaut. Clearly visible within the frame, however, is a circle, roughly circumscribing what appears to be a bolt of lightning. And again, it could only be assumed that this was inserted into the film with thought and intention. Below this symbol are three smaller red circles. The familiar idea of triplicity continues to weave itself through the film, while introducing a heretofore unknown symbol. It is difficult to determine precisely what this might mean, but there are certainly a few theories. Not only is the bolt of lightning one of the most complex and multi-layered symbols appearing in modern media, but it is also one of the most frequently reoccurring. What does it mean, though? First, we might consider the connection to Lucifer. Lightning itself is not only powerful, with the ability to destroy anything with its touch, but it is a source of light which illuminates the space around it. The appearance of lightning, a brilliant beam of light descending suddenly from the heavens, is a natural fit to describe one whose name translates to Lightbringer. In Luke chapter 10, verse 18 of the Christian Bible, None other than Jesus himself even says that he, quote, saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
Second, and this one might be a bit more of a stretch, but the circular symbol might represent the planet Saturn. Saturn appears more than once in this film, and upon closer examination to the flashback sequence, we can see that young Gru has a drawing in his hands where we can see a rocket traveling through space with the planet Saturn directly above. Hollywood films and various other celebrities have utilized the lightning bolt symbol for decades. Here are just a few examples. The logo of Marvel's The Flash, the logo of DC's Black Adam, the face paint of Ziggy Stardust, the popular alias of the musician David Bowie, and the outfits of Jojo Siwa, a popular influencer who also commonly wears face paint which covers one eye with a star which, by the way, is another Luciferian symbol, as he's often referred to as the Morning Star. Additional examples include the logo for the 2008 Disney film Bolt, and of course, the lightning bolt-shaped scar on Harry Potter's forehead. Lightning also features a role in Steven Spielberg's remake of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, where the alien tripods, which had been buried beneath the Earth prior to their invasion, were reanimated or activated by bolts of lightning. The Gatorade brand utilizes a bolt of lightning and the letter G as its logo, and the German car company Opel also features a logo of a lightning bolt circumscribed within a circle. And Opel is a subsidiary of General Motors, whose abbreviation is GM. And we already know the significance of the letters G and M. I am certain that there are myriad more which I have been remiss to mention. What is abundantly clear, however, is that the lightning bolt is a common Luciferian symbol with widespread use within our media. As a final note about the Bank of Evil, once Gru's flashback ends, Mr. Perkins' son Victor approaches Gru. As he does, we can see a poster on the wall on the right-hand corner of the screen. The poster depicts a black vulture hunched menacingly over carrying a sign in speak. It states, Evil Loans, Life Guarantee, and beneath that, in barely visible font, Sign Up in Blood Today. To be sure, it's a strange detail to include within the mise-en-scene, but all the more chilling when we recall that Agnes's name harkens to ritualistic sacrifice. Although there are many more minor instances of symbology, Within Despicable Me. One of the last examples we'll discuss is the imagery relating to Saturn. The planet Saturn is named after the Roman god Saturn, which in turn comes from the Greek Kronos or Kronos, the king of the Titans, a race of deity like beings who preceded the gods of Olympus and who were overthrown by a coup spearheaded by Zeus, which corresponds to the Roman Jupiter. The origins of the modern Christmas holiday have their roots in the Roman festival of Saturnalia, whose Germanic neo-pagan counterpart is Yule. Saturnalia was a complex festival, held in honor of an equally complex god, whose convolution rivaled even that of the Greek Apollo. This may be attributed to the fact that Saturn has even more ancient and multifarious origins, reaching back to the Etruscan Saturn or Saturnus, while the Etruscan depiction of Saturn or Saturnus, remains largely shrouded in mystery, 
it was understood that the deity was a thonic deity, that is, one relating to the earth or underworld, as well as an agricultural god. And while we know very little about Etruscan myth as it pertains to Saturnus, it is, however, clear that the deity was a frightening and dangerous god who hurls his lightning from his abode deep in the earth. The Roman Saturn was one of the most archaic and also one of the most venerated gods of his respective pantheon. And during the Roman Republic and Roman Empire, a temple dedicated to the worship of Saturn was located at the base of Capitolium or Capitoline Hill, of which the United States' own Capitol Hill surely draws inspiration. While the majority of the activities taking place during Saturnalia include merrymaking, feasting, gift giving, and the reversal of roles, similar in theme and character to Carnival, there are historical records indicating that blood sacrifice was also an integral component of Saturn worship. And in Saturn's wintertime festival, gladiatorial games were held in honor of Saturn, where the inevitable bloodshed was meant to satiate the god and improve the quality of the next harvest. Now that we understand a bit more about Saturn's origins in mythology, we can return to present day. In occult circles, it is speculated that Saturn worship still occurs. The rapper Ice Cube even made a tweet about it, but I won't go into detail about that. To this point, I will encourage listeners to do their own research and draw their own conclusions. Be that as it may, it is unmistakable that there is an object or a concept known as the Black Cube of Saturn, which plays a vital yet enigmatic role within such occult communities. When the Cassini space probe passed by the planet Saturn to take photographs of its surface, it was revealed that a black hexagon was present at one of the planet's poles. Since we have no data about the planet's surface, it would be impossible to determine with certainty what the black hexagon is. Stranger still, is the fact that the black hexagon, which can be viewed as a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional cube, is surrounded by a cyclonic storm or vortex of sorts, which is also hexagonal and which has unceasingly persisted. While there are theories as to the origin and cause of the hexagonal pattern of the storm, as well as the black hexagon itself, none have been confirmed, and the pole of Saturn remains an unsolved mystery to this day. What's more is that there are several examples of black cubes in modern-day art and sculptures, which are prominently featured in many major cities around the world, including the Alamo, or the Astor Place Cube, a structure by Bernard Rosenthal, located in Manhattan, in New York City, as well as numerous other cubes found in Santa Ana, California, Australia, and Denmark. There is a multi-billion dollar private intelligence firm based in London, Madrid, and Tel Aviv known as Black Cube, run by ex-members of the IDF, or Israeli Defense Force. The holy object in the Islamic religion is the Kaaba, literally cube in Arabic. It is a building in the center of Islam's most important mosque and is considered to be the most sacred site in Islam with adherents frequently making pilgrimage to, to Mecca, Saudi Arabia, in order to engage in prayer, as well as circumambulate seven times around the cube, a ritual known as tawaf. 
In the Quran, the cube is referred to as al-bayt, translating to the house. It is also referred to as the sacred house, the ancient house, and the house of God, or Allah's house. The Kaaba is a massive cuboid structure fashioned of gray granite, said to have been built by Abraham, according to Islamic scholarship and exegesis of the Quran. It was said to be a place of worship for Malaika, angels, preceding the creation of man, which was lost during the Great Flood and rebuilt in the same location. According to the same exegetical interpretation, while Abraham was constructing the Kaaba, an angel brought to him a piece of stone, known as the Black Stone, which was placed in the eastern corner of the structure. It is also covered by an immense black cloth. In the tradition of Orthodox Judaism, black cubes known as tefillin or phylacteries are attached to the hands and forehead for the purposes of prayer. In Arthur C. Clarke's novel, 2001, A Space Odyssey, various monoliths, black cuboid structures of ancient extraterrestrial origin are discovered by humanity on the moon and on Iapetus, a moon of, guessed it, Saturn. In the Christopher Nolan film Interstellar, perhaps as an homage to Stanley Kubrick's film adaptation of 2001, a wormhole to a distant star system is discovered near Saturn. In the music video for the song Southern Sun by Paul Oakenfold, near the end of the video, a woman, transmogrified into a child, enters into a mysterious craft shaped like a black cube, appearing in the center of a forest, which then lifts into the air, ascending toward the heavens. There are likely more instances of black cubes within popular media, with ties to Saturn, but these are just a few of the examples that I could find in the course of my research. Now, how does this all relate back to Despicable Me? Well, during the film, Gru brings the three girls that he adopts to an amusement park called Super Silly Funland. In order to win a fluffy stuffed unicorn as a prize for Agnes, the girls, and eventually Gru, play a space-themed shooting carnival game. Here's where things take a bizarre turn. The goal of the game is to shoot and knock over an alien spaceship, shaped like the stereotypical flying saucer. But what is more striking is the fact that the UFO, illuminated in bright light for us, the audience to see, is attached to a specific planet, and that planet is Saturn. Of course, it could just be a generic ringed planet, but what tips us off that this is indeed Saturn is the fact that a much larger planet is located besides it, one with a surface that resembles that of Jupiter, even down to the detail of the Great Red Spot. Unrelated to Saturn, but also noteworthy in the scene, is that Margot, the eldest of the adopted girls, is wearing a black shirt underneath her coat that is otherwise blank except for what appears to be an owl. Both the owl and the unicorn that Agnes pines over in the scene have connotations to Moloch and Saturn, both of which are ancient deities who demanded human or child sacrifice in exchange for increased fertility, a more bountiful harvest, and financial prosperity. Moloch, while typically associated with the bull, is a horned deity. The unicorn, as a horned mythical creature, represents wild and supernatural power. It represents magic, 
and the wonders or miracles associated with magic. This is precisely why it's so odd that Agnes states, It's so fluffy, I'm gonna die. At first blush, this statement, which we might consider fluff, or a trite and playful exclamation, develops more sinister implications when we consider that Agnes symbolizes child sacrifice. The owl, on the other hand, while often conflated with Moloch, perhaps erroneously so, is most likely not representative of Moloch, but rather is a reference to the Owl of Minerva from Greek mythology, who serves under Athena, the goddess of wisdom and war, among other things. The Owl as Moloch gained traction in part due to the burning of owl effigies in the cremation of cares ritual undertaken by members of the Bohemian Grove Society. Yet, it is more likely the case that the owl, the servant of Athena, symbolizes the path toward wisdom for knowledge, often through dark or treacherous territory. In a way, the owl represents the seeking of occult knowledge and one's path toward that end, a journey through the abyss toward illumination. And on that note, this episode, our initial foray into the depths of the symbology of Freemasonry and the Illuminati, comes to a close. While I've conducted countless hours of research, including watching and re-watching this film several times, I must still acknowledge that it's a practical impossibility for one person unaided to discover the full breadth of secret symbols, illusions, and messages encoded within the film. There will inevitably be things that I missed and things that I've overlooked. Or perhaps there were things that I did touch on did not delve deep enough into. My dear listeners, in the spirit of knowledge and its endless pursuit, I would urge each and every one of you to notify me of anything else you consider to be noteworthy within this film that I did not mention. I'd be more than happy to explore those subjects in a future episode, and I'll be definitely be doing a deep dive into the many sequels and spin-offs of Despicable Me and Minions as well as the many other films produced by Illumination, should they warrant closer inspection. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Myths and Media, and found it entertaining. Maybe even came out feeling more enlightened, even if just a bit. Thank you, truly, for taking the time to listen. If you would like to see more of this kind of content, please consider liking and sharing this podcast. It really helps grow the brand and would allow me to explore even more fascinating topics down the road. I'd love to hear your thoughts and read your comments, even your criticisms, if it means that I can improve in any way. And if you have any suggestions for future content, I would definitely take them into consideration. If the series gains enough momentum, I'll begin to branch out into other media, including making content in video essay format on YouTube, as well as producing content for Patreon. For now, however, make sure to stay tuned for more Myths and Media content coming in the near future. And while it is now time for us to part, dear listeners, always remember, stay safe, stay brave, and above all, stay curious. <laughs>